When we join the Bible storyline today, the child whose genealogy we studied together last week has now grown up into a remarkable man. Though many authors have speculated on what those growing up years were filled with, the truth is that the Gospels provide us with precious few details about the first 30 years of Jesus' life. We know that he and his family were refugees in Egypt for a season. They left the land of Israel in order to flee from King Herod, who was on a genocidal rampage slaughtering children of a certain age, Jewish children of a certain age, because he had heard prophets and wise men speak of a coming king who was starting as a child and would usurp his throne. Following the return of Jesus from uh, Egypt, uh, he and his family, the Luke's gospel suggests, uh, went through the normal rhythms that were customary to the life of anyone in the society of that time. Jesus underwent circumcision. He observed the Jewish laws. We get pictures of his family going to the feasts by which Israel marked its devotion to God and his historical working with them. We get an image of Jesus working alongside of his mother and father, much as every child of that age would do. And in one telling event, we get a snapshot of the life of Jesus at age 12, where he and his family are visiting Jerusalem for the Passover, and Jesus stays behind a little rebelliously, a little bit like an adolescent does sometimes, straying or at least separating himself from his own parents. And he is found in the temple talking with the teachers of the law. And in this glimpse of Jesus' life, we see him already displaying a stunning intellect, absolutely amazing the adults who meet him. Luke ultimately sums up Jesus' entire youth in these simple words. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and all people. Isn't that the hope, the best hope we often have for our children? That they might grow in wisdom and in stature, in favor with God and with all people. But when he breaks onto the world scene next, some 30 years have passed by since his birth. Just as the prophet Isaiah and the last Old Testament prophet Malachi had foreseen some 800 and 400 years earlier, a new kind of prophet comes to announce the arrival of Jesus. The prophet is here to call people back to God to prepare the way for God himself to come and take his rightful place among his people. And this prophet that we meet in the New Testament is the man that we call John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. John is a preacher who attracts a following so huge that many people are suspecting that he is in fact the Messiah himself. They're ready to crown him as the new leader of Israel. He is gaining such a large following, in fact, that Herod the king, now the second Herod, is terrified of him and is beginning to think about how he can get rid of this dangerous demagogue. But John himself, in spite of this immense popularity, and it's really hard to describe accurately the kind of following John had, except perhaps to point back to you know, political parallels in our own recent era. An amazing groundswell of fascination with the person of John has grown up. But John remains constantly clear on his calling. 
apparently totally unswayed by the adoration of his following. John understands that his call is to declare the arrival of somebody infinitely more powerful and important than he. And John tells us that this one who is coming will baptize people not just with water for the forgiveness of sins, but with the power, the fire of the Holy Spirit for the transformation of their lives. They will not only meet in this man the power to forgive sins, but they will meet in him the power to renew and restore human life and indeed the creation itself. And in one of the most magnificent transitions of power in history, I think, John turns at the height of his popularity and he points the masses towards the figure of his younger cousin just walking by. And he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here I am baptizing you in the water for the forgiveness of your sin. Behold, the sacrificial Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the whole world. And then in words of self-awareness and humble devotion, which remain, I think, the model for every single disciple that has lived since John, John says, I am not the Christ. I'm not the Savior. But He is. Says John, pointing to Jesus. And he must become greater, he says. And I, I must become less. Is he becoming greater and greater in you? As the old self becomes less and less. And with this remark the crowd and hopefully you and I turn their eyes upon Jesus. Most of us, I imagine, know how the story unfolds from there. It's written in the pages of the text that you were assigned for today. You probably know well how Jesus goes on then to identify himself with human sin by choosing to be baptized in the River Jordan. You may recall how as he is coming up out of the waters, the voice of God is heard declaring, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. This is my son whom I love and in whom I am well pleased. In other words, I am especially fond of him. Especially fond of him. And from there, Jesus goes out into the desert to prepare for the ministry, the public ministry he's now going to have. He goes out to prepare in fasting and in prayer for the significant work of the future. And we know from the gospel stories how he endures their terrible temptations, demonstrating time and time again his unshakable foundation in the word of God that provides him with the rooting that he needs to fulfill his mission. Upon his return from the desert, Jesus begins to go out into the countryside of Galilee in the northern part of Israel, preaching the good news of God's kingdom. This is the central uh, message of Jesus' life, that, that, that God himself is not some distant deity, but he is the king whose reign is breaking into human history and calling human beings into his life and restoring and realigning 
the creation itself. The kingdom of God, says Jesus, is near. And as a sign of God's power to address people's needs, and as a sign of God's passion for those needs and His care for people, Jesus begins a ministry of healing diseases and casting out evil spirits from people. Jesus goes on to describe the human condition and the character of God in unforgettable stories and parables. Many of us know them to this day. He describes the basic precepts for living. He recontents the significance of the ancient law in a way that provides with tremendous clarity a pathway and a set of precepts for human life that attract the attention and win the devotion of the crowds. People are absolutely amazed by authority of Jesus' teaching. His capacity to command even the forces of nature itself stuns the people who meet him. And not surprisingly, news begins to spread quickly, almost virally across the landscape as all throughout Galilee, uh, people begin to, to, to pick up sticks and go to wherever Jesus is as his ministry is marked by an ever-expanding crowd of people. What is so fascinating to observe as you read your way through the Gospels, perhaps you noted, is that as his, his popularity amongst the public com, uh, increases, as he endures more and more pressures from people without, he is absolutely res- resolute in maintaining the intensity and focus of his inner life. He displays a profound value for solitude, prayer, and other spiritual disciplines. He seems able to to stay incredibly intimate with God in spite of all that pulls on him. He seems remarkably clear on his mission at every moment, no matter how many people try and steer him to some different agenda. The mission of Jesus is a simple one. I have come to seek and to save the lost, he says. I have come to seek and to save the lost. I have come to plant the love of God. To sow the seed of this gospel. To picture the kingdom's reign in human life. One of the most striking things about Jesus as we study His life is how surrounded by vast crowds He never sees a crowd or rarely sees one. But so often a gathering of individuals. Each one known by God, precious to God, beloved in God. We see Him identifying with the heart cries of these people, the hurts and hungers of people, the leper by the road, the woman in the crowd, the adulteress at the well. Jesus is committed to reaching individuals. And just as often, Jesus is also willing to do the bold thing, the hard thing, the politically incorrect thing in a sense, in that He names the cause of the, the root cause of people's Problems. He names sin, separation from God, as the root problem of all of humanity. His consistent message is that God can make things right with the world only if the world will try to get right with God. 
It's a message we still need to take very seriously today, I submit. As we're tempted once more to believe that some other power, some government, some legislative package can rescue us from our maladies. When the call of Jesus rings down through the centuries as current as the day it was issued, saying, come unto me and I will give you rest. This is, of course, the essence of perhaps the most famous words that Jesus ever spoke as recorded in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten, His one and only Son, that whosoever should believe in Him. And the essence of the original language there is not simply a cognitive assent that He exists or, or that He did exist, but whosoever believed suggests whosoever trusts, puts their trust, their life in Him, whosoever does this, shall not perish, but have eternal life. And then I love the next verse. It's often left off. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, to be its judge, but that the world might be saved through Him. Jesus Christ makes it very clear that God's ambition is nothing less than the salvation of the whole world. And He makes it very clear as well that this salvation is possible only for those who know they need saving. Jesus tells us that He can do nothing with the people who are blind to that need, numb to that need. Jesus said, I have not come to call the self-righteous, those who refuse to recognize their need, those who believe they're already healthy enough. I can do nothing for them. I've come not for them, but I've come for those who know they are sin-sick and in need of the truth and grace of God. Are you and I, are you and I aware of our need for salvation. Sometimes it's hard for people steeped in religious life to remember that they are sick people too. One of the great themes of the Gospels is actually the reaction, you probably read it this week, of these religious people, the establishment to the ministry of Jesus. The Pharisees and teachers of the law saw his popularity with the people. They heard his reinterpretation of the Sabbath laws and his reinvigoration of the Mosaic laws. They, they listened to him as he made these outrageous claims about himself, claiming godlike properties and identity. They watch his pattern of fraternizing with outcast people. They see how he indulges even children and women in His presence. They, they watch as He spends His time and His energies giving second chances to people that are obviously moral failures. And they grow to hate Him. They grow to hate Him. And they accuse Him of blasphemy. They accuse Him of doing miracles by demonic power. They ultimately resolve that this Jesus 
must die. The purposes of God will be best served if this Jesus would die. And how right they were. Though they didn't understand that He was actually born to die. He was indeed the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. What the religious people of His time could not grasp is that it would be in the very act of His dying that Jesus would reveal the love of God that overcomes death and sin. What they could not see is that it It is in His self-chosen sacrifice that Jesus will destroy the curse of sin that has hamstrung and haunted humanity since first man and woman turned their back on God and chose their own way. What they do not yet get, these religious people, is what no one alive at that moment, frankly, got, is that the cross would be the instrument of the new creation. That it would be the beginning of the restoration of Eden. That it would be the turning point of the history of the world. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. That's further along the storyline. We'll get there. I've chosen to summarize the message and ministry of Jesus in this way this morning for a particular reason. Not because... I don't think you know the details, though I think it's helpful to hear it again. Maybe some of us are hearing these these contours for the very first time. It's not only because it is the centerpiece of the greatest story ever told, this story of Jesus' life. It's not simply because it's the content of the Scripture text that we're assigned for our reading in this portion of the storyline study. It is because this life that Jesus led... This life that is described so beautifully in the pages of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This this life of profound significance. This life of creative influence. This life of redemptive import. This life of absolute perfect love. This life, Jesus calls you, you, and me to live also. One of the most recurrent refrains from the lips of Jesus is this three-word invitation. Come. Follow me. When we hear those words, we may think Jesus is just saying, come and watch me from a distance when He is saying, come, take up my life. Learn of me. Come. Sup with me. Come. Walk in my steps. Come. Be filled with my spirit. Come, grow my heart. Come, develop my mind. Come, be filled with my strength. Come, reproduce my life. Follow me. What does this really look like in practice? What does it look like to do more than just admire the life of Jesus from a distance? What does it look like to just do more than talk about his life intellectually? What does it look like to do more than memorialize his life in a religion? What does it look like to follow 
Jesus. I mean, if you set yourself the aim of really becoming like Jesus, what would the journey toward that destination actually involve? Well, the answer to that question is what we're going to be exploring together over these weeks ahead in much greater depth. For some of us, this may be old hat. For many of us, this will be new. For all of us, I pray it will be helpful. We're going to look together during this Lenten series ahead at the journey toward Christ-likeness. I've given you a handout, a little preview of that in your worship materials today. And there's some ideas there that may be worth pondering over the course of this week to come. But I just want to highlight a few of them today and then deal with them in much greater depth in the weeks ahead. The first idea that I want to try and leave with us today for our reflection is that there are actually some fairly predictable stages or seasons in the journey toward Christ's likeness. Some of us are aware that there are predictable seasons in the journey of grief. People start very often with denial that it's even happened. And then there's this bargaining. Oh God, if I do this, make do undo this. And then there's a movement to anger and frustration and struggle. Oh, you know, why has this happened? And then there's a depression that follows that and eventually a sense of acceptance that follows that. There is a somewhat predictable pattern to the journey of grief. There is a somewhat predictable pattern to the journey of faith, to the journey toward Christ's likeness. And we're going to be thinking about those particular stages or seasons in the weeks ahead. Secondly, you're going to notice that while there are some elements of all the different spiritual seasons at any given point in your life, just as in the journey of grief, you know, it's not just all denial and all bargaining and all that. They're mixed together and then we move back and forth. But generally it flows in one direction. There are, there are some elements of all these different spiritual stages. Most of us have a home stage in which we get camped for a season. We're going to help you identify what that home stage may be in your spiritual journey in days to come. Thirdly, you're going to find that movement through these stages tends to happen in a certain order, but is fluid. And you may move back and forth between these different seasons at times. But as you progress along the spiritual journey, you're going to carry the wealth of the prior stages with you. And the cumulative effect of these different stages is what maturing or maturity in the Christian life is all about. You may journey around the circuit of these stages numerous times, revisiting past stages, but you'll do so either at a higher level or at a lower one, much as one would go up or down a spiral staircase. And that's going to be an image we'll talk more about. The fourth idea that I want to impress upon you is that progress spiritual growth on the journey comes from the grace of God at work in us. It's God's power. It's His life that does this. 
But that life moves through particular vessels, through particular vehicles, as it were. It, 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 it is maximized most by certain kinds of steps that we take at each stage. And we're going to talk much more about that in the weeks ahead, the specific steps that we take in the Christian life. The key point here is that if we're not intentional about taking particular steps, these kinds of steps, our stage can become a cage. We can become stuck on the spiritual journey. We can come to believe that where we are is all that this journey ever goes to. And we can get frustrated. (laughs) We can get very disappointed when the Christian life doesn't seem what it's cracked up to be, the way the preacher and other people I hear describing it, but it's because we're stuck. We've been caged at a particular stage. Some of us may be feeling that right now. We'll talk about how you escape that cage. Finally, the goal of the journey is the most important. The goal of the spiritual journey is not knowing more doctrine alone. It isn't becoming more religious than other people alone. It isn't having a pain-free life. It isn't earning moral merit badges that will impress your neighbors or allow me to stand up and say, here, God, you have to take me now. Look at all the credits I've racked up. That's not the goal of the journey. It's easy to get confused about that stuff along the way. What if it turned out that the real purpose of life wasn't what many people aim for at all? What if it doesn't matter in the end so much that we made it to the top of the organizational pyramid or that we racked up the most wins or that we closeted the most toys? What if it turns out that looking youthful the longest or put together the smoothest wasn't actually the prize that really counted? What if this whole malaise that our world is going through right now was actually something of a gift, if you think about it, because it offers us this opportunity to reset our sights, to take them on all off of those things we had been chasing and put them instead on the greatest prize available to humanity, the opportunity to learn to love like Jesus. What if that was the aim of our life. I have a dream. And it's a real dream. This is not made up. This is not just preaching. This is confessing. I've got this dream. That one day there's going to be this funeral at which I am the silent guest. Maybe it'll be right here in this building. Who knows? But in this dream... My family's there. And they're, they're just swapping stories about the way I love them. I mean, they're t- describing how, you know, Dad just always seemed to know how to, to challenge me in the way I needed it most. Or, 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 you know, my brother Dan, he was just wonderful at encouraging me. I'd be down and he would just... He would speak words of truth to me that just got me up and going again. 
Or I, I just love the way Dan celebrated me. I mean, with such joy. He was my biggest fan. I just felt loved by him and it strengthened me in every way. I, I, I dream that, that at this gathering there are friends and workmates there. And they're talking about all the ways they saw me using my gifts in the service of the very best things, motivated by love for other people. And there, my wife is there alongside some of those workmates, and and she's observing how, you know, his character got better over time. I mean, it changed for the better, and it needed to. She admits. And my workmates all agree. But it was wonderful to see how the older he got, the more full of love, joy, peace, patience, the fruit of the Spirit, his life became. And there are representatives from organizations there that I had sacrificed for and and used my gifts to serve the, the cause of those who needed it most in this world. And there are even a few old enemies have come to my funeral. Because as I got older, I'd been moved with this passion to reconcile with them, to reach out in love toward them, a bit like Jesus. I tell you, it's just a dream. It's, just, it's a vision I have. I'm not very far toward that destination. I mean, if I die tomorrow, we're in trouble. But it's a dream I have. It's the purpose I have in life. It is why I'm on the intentional journey. What's your dream? What's your aim? Where are you on the journey? What steps do you need to take to keep making progress? And do you understand that with the grace of God, it's possible for you to live a life of perfect love like Jesus? Please pray with me. Lord God, may it be said of each of us and all of us what was said of those first disciples. They followed Jesus and He brought them all the way home. Amen.